Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powadic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powadic. My co-host, as always, is Aaron Cameron. Our guest today hails from Vancouver. He is Lance Coulson, who is the Executive Vice President of the CBRE National Apartment Group and Investment Properties Team. He specializes in apartments, which is you know very topical. We are sitting here at the, the end of May, and of course, we are getting lots of reporting from across the country on the state of apartments. And we thought that uh, bringing on Lance, who's an expert, would be, would be very enlightening for everybody. So welcome to the show, Lance. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We always start these podcasts, just kind of a bit of a history. Um, you're at CBRE now, but what, what, what was the journey that got you there? I guess it all started, my grandfather and uh, uncle had an appraising company down in Seattle, Washington. So as a kid and, and in my kind of early years, you know, they were a couple of mentors, you know, telling me about the real estate business. And, you know, I would accompany them on appraisals and, uh, you know, they were telling me the ins and outs of how the business worked. And that kind of got my interest and my attention. I had other family members that were in residential real estate and it was just uh, an avenue or a path that I wanted to get into. And uh, I thought, you know, probably it wasn't so much residential as more commercial. So I went to BCIT and that was kind of in the mid nineties and took the marketing management program. Uh, majored in real estate in the second year. And then uh, after graduating and getting my diploma, I went on to uh, UBC and uh, took the, got my broker's license and then started to try and look for a job and applied at a number of the, the larger commercial real estate firms in Vancouver and got a job in August of 1998 with CBRE. And I was working under two senior investment brokers as part of their team and I did that for about six years. And primarily my role was the marketing of uh, all our listings and opportunities. And then later throughout that, near the end of the six years, I got to, you know, getting into some junior brokering end dates. And then uh, from there, I transitioned into developing my own team and to getting to where I am today. So that's kind of the history of how it all started. And what are you doing today? What's the business aligned? Predominantly, uh, our team, uh, we're part of the National Apartment Group for CBRE uh, out of Vancouver, specializing in uh, the sale of existing rental apartment assets and new builds. We also do development land sales, predominantly for condo or rental. Another part of our business is doing strata wind-up opportunities where we'll work with the strata to uh, wind their strata down and then sell the underlying land out to a developer. So. Um, it's kind of threefold, existing assets, new build, rental apartment, and then land and strata wind-up opportunities for, for redevelopment. And uh, our team uh, has been a leading brokerage team in Vancouver and Victoria for those types of assets over the last seven to 10 years. So you're in an interesting position in that uh, you've, gone, you've gone CBRE from graduation until, until where you are now. Our own Aaron Cameron, of course, is, is uh, I think he's a, a ten-year veteran of First National, so he's in the same path, just not quite far as long. But that, that is relatively unusual. I know that um, like a, a few of the big brokerage houses do have those pillars of their company that have been there forever, but it is unusual. So, what was it about CBRE that uh, kept you kept you there for this entire time? I think it's the culture and uh, the people uh, that are there. Uh, a lot of the brokers that have been there have been there for a similar amount of time or longer. So there's long-term relationships. I've always been a believer in CBRE's global platform and the brand. 
the, the largest commercial real estate company on the planet. And uh, just to have that platform and, and the support behind you is just something that I felt couldn't be duplicated by, uh, by another firm. And, uh, you know, they've treated me right. And we've had success growing together over that time. And, uh, you know, just a, just a privilege to be a part of, of, an, of that so type of an organization. A, it's tough to leave, I guess, is, is what you're saying. You know, I think you've got to have a want to leave, right? And, uh, you know, can another firm give you something over and above which you're not getting now? Because really to leave your firm, you're going to have downtime for six months or a year or longer. So, um, and the grass isn't always greener on the other side too, right? So if you're happy and you're successful and you're getting the support and resources that you need, you've bought into the culture, you know, I think it's, it's, it's been a yeah. good ride. Of <laughs> Why ruin a good thing? Sure. Let's transition a little bit into the marketplace. I mean, like, like Adam said, it's made something, I think 28th or something like that. We're in quarantine, of course. But let's talk about the year of 2019 and, and maybe just what was transpiring in Vancouver and BC in the apartment market over that time span. I guess coming into uh, 2019, there was a number of different changes, government policy changes that directly affected multifamily buildings, one of which was a change and increase in the property purchase tax. And then there was the foreign buyers tax and uh, just a number of different policies and restrictions on, on renovations and what a landlord could do on, uh, on renovation and turnover. So a lot of that happened all at one time. So in the early part of 2019, I think buyers for rental assets were really trying to digest all those changes to figure out what that meant and how that may or may not affect value. So in the first half of 2019, I think our total sales for Vancouver, Greater Vancouver, Victoria was just over 400 million, which was significantly down from the previous year. And then kind of, I guess when we got into the summer, it turned a corner and uh, there was more confidence in the market. And then we ended up the second half of 2019 of about 800 million, so a total of 1.2 million. But we really, it really caught fire last summer um, and ended up being a very good and active year. But it was a little, the little undecisiveness to start 2019, to say the least. Interesting. So go ahead, Adam. How did that carry over into 2020? If, if you built up a good momentum through 2019, did that carry through? 2020, at least the part of it that was uh, attached to our previous lives, not our, our current situation? Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, there was a number of inquiries from private to institution, uh, 2019, you know, starting off that first quarter, everybody was active and uh, looking for opportunities. We had a number of opportunities that uh, were out in the market or that we had activity on. And then, uh, unfortunately, in that early mid part of March, when COVID took port, we had a number of things either stop or get halted or, or fall apart, which obviously affected the, the whole industry. This is a tough question. I apologize. It fascinates me only because Vancouver was the first municipality jurisdiction to experience it. But I think we're starting to see it across the country, particularly in Toronto. And I think starting in Montreal with this concept of like the decoupling of income and rent levels. And I've heard this explained a number of different ways. And I think we've asked on the podcast a number of times, but how are people justifying, you know, the rents that we're seeing and how are people affording it? You know, that four and a half, five buck rent in the downtown Vancouver region. I've heard five and a half, six bucks. I don't know. You tell yeah, me what the you know, ceiling what I, is. I don't think that five, six dollar rents are as common. As, you know, I think that's a little bit overblown. I think it's really kind of a change in philosophy. 
And I'll tell you, you know, when I was growing up, one of the things, okay, when you grow up, you got to, you got to be a homeowner, you know, ownership was really important. And and although that still is for the millennial now, I think they're coming to the grips with, you know, maybe I don't need to own my own home. You know, I'm okay, you know, being a renter. And there's a number of people that work for tech firms or, you know, have good professional jobs that are looking for good rental accommodation, not needing or having a requirement to own and are willing to pay a good rent. And I think we're seeing that a lot in Vancouver and probably in Toronto and and other major cities. And I think that's just a change in philosophy that we've probably seen over the last, you know, three to five years. Speaking of arguably overblown, what influence did foreign buyers have in the apartment market through 2019? They came in with that foreign buyers tax, which was another 20%. So that really softened and there was a, a significant pullback with foreign buyers. And that's what really caused the lull in the first half of 2019 and even previous to that. So from what I understand from my colleagues, that wasn't just multifamily. That was all assets, all asset classes. I did near the end of 2019, you know, that sort of started to pick up. We were getting more inquiries. But to answer your question, for the, for the better part of 2019, that had predominantly dried up. There is an argument to be made then that there would have been an effect prior. If there was a noticeable lull after the introduction of that tax, if it did influence the market, the argument, of course, would be that there was an impact before. So there was some effect at the time, but you would say it's not, it was not a part of, the, part of the market going forward. I did well, preface the question by saying arguably overblown because I've heard yeah. arguments both ways. That it's either the entire market or it's, it's, it's nothing. These are all smart people making sound arguments and I don't know what to believe. The Liberal government before the NDP came in and they started it with the foreign buyers tax, but a lot of different things had happened over that time, right? To the point where NDP raised it to 20%. But, you know, there was information coming out that it was harder to get your money out of China. And there's a lot of different things that are going on over there. So I think that had an effect in addition to the increase, you know, why that inflow of capital had slowed down. So I think it was, it was a number of different variables. Do you want to maybe this is a good segue into land prices and just what kind of transpired over 2019? I mean, I had been kind of hearing that land sales have kind of really dried up. I mean, there was a peak, you know, you do tell me on a per square foot buildable, sort of 550, maybe even 600, and that, that it's, it's come down substantially. So maybe just talk through the life of what's transpired in the land sector and maybe kind of squeak into a little bit of, you know, what's happening right now as it relates to developable land. Yeah, well, I, I think in general, I guess it's, it's, there's two sides to it. The condo market had started to really soften in 2019. So that restricted the ability of developers in a lot of these core markets to pay what was the high market or peak pricing of, let's say, you know, the, the summer, early fall of 2018. They just couldn't pay it anymore. They weren't getting the pre-sales. They weren't getting the price per foot values to make that work. And then, yeah, I guess looking at rental, you know, a number of the municipalities were still difficult to work with when it came to building rental, the time it took to get through the process. So I think there was a number of different things going on at the same time that affected developers, whether they were looking at condos or the rental that overall softened or or pulled back the type of pricing that we were seeing in previous years. What price do you need to be at right now to make a purpose-built? makes sense. A lot of it's being done either out in the valley in the Langley, Surrey, 
markets. You know, there are a number of projects on the books or in motion in Vancouver, but I think it's easier to make the numbers work out in the Valley. And I think it's a little quicker working with the municipalities out there. But for the most part, and everyone will have a different opinion on this, you could interview 10 developers and probably get 10 different answers. But I think realistically, you need to be in the low 200 buildables, you know, or even today, maybe a little bit lower than that in order to make it accretive to build rental today. And can you find land at that level? It's been challenging, but there are opportunities out there. Developers have managed to do assemblies in different areas to make that work or different opportunities that may have been too pricey previous. Those ownership groups or owners have come back and said, you know what, we've been willing to lower our price or expectation. And those could have been negotiations or conversations that have gone on for some time. Has there been any transactions in the last, you know, anything during this crisis to to put a pin on uh, pricing where we are, or is it still just a vacuum of information? The biggest challenge that we have right now and that we're going to have probably over the next six months is going to be valuation. Any of the properties that have closed really got started and were probably firm before COVID. And uh, whether they closed in April or May, it was negotiated or, or went through due diligence prior to this. And right now, it, wasn't, it hasn't been a time to take out new listings when you don't have an audience. And uh, you know, right now, you can't even tour anybody through buildings because under the COVID emergency legislation that was passed by the provincial government, a tenant has to authorize any entry into their suite. So there's been those challenges. So I think it's going to take some time to see kind of where valuations are going. However, my opinion is just based on some of the deals that we've been putting together or trying to put together over the last couple of weeks, because I've seen the sentiment change over the last three weeks that then at any time, you know, before this started, you know, I think there's more hope and more optimism that, you know, our economy is fully unfolding. But I think people have got accustomed to saying, okay, well, I can wear a mask and, and use, you know, do social distancing to try to, you know, look at a property. So we've had more inquiries and we've actually put a few properties under contract. And now those values were similar to pre-COVID. But I think to get a total understanding, especially on the larger assets, it's going to take a few months and we're going to have to get some of that sales data to really see how there's going to be a change if there is going to be a change. And I know you can't share your information now with us for deals you're working on. <laughs> I won't ask you that. That's not, it's not a fair question, of not course. Fair. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, part of the part of it has been, uh, you know, getting financing. You know, the commercial component had basically dried up throughout COVID. But CMHC, as you know, is is still processing applications. It, it, they are taking longer, but the financing that you can get today, you know, whether that's five or ten year insured money, you know, at two percent or lower, is pretty amazing, and and it is available. With the resilience that multifamily shown, um, as far as you know, tenants paying the rent and the, consist- the consistency of the cash flow, in combination with the, that uh, type of financing that's available, there is people starting to make inquiries, and everything transitions the way that everybody's hoping it will over the next three to six months. You know, I think fall of this year could be a good quarter. Adam, is this where we put in a shameless plug about First National being the best apartment financing company and we've got plenty of money and come contact us if you have any, if you have any financing needs? Never mind, we won't go there. We won't do that. Um, I, I'm too, mod- I'm too modest to do that, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I was just asking you if we should. 
Oh, okay, um, well, you should. You should. Oh, no, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. So, okay. So, so Lance, before we get into COVID and, and the current state and, and maybe a little bit of projections for us and what we kind of, you know, think is going to happen, I, I wanted to talk about something you mentioned because you've got a land division and you kind of called it a land and a strata wind-up group or, or, or you know, department or, or, or component of your business. Yeah. I'm not familiar of that occurring anywhere else in the country. And it probably has in maybe small sample sets at other places, but I think it's something that is, is kind of unique to, to Vancouver, maybe BC at large. But maybe just explain for our listeners that are unfamiliar with, what are you talking about with that strata wind-up? Sure. And, and what's the benefit and how does it kind of function? Sure. In addition to rental apartment buildings, a number of these wood frame condo buildings are 40, 50, 60 years old and uh, are coming to the end of their useful life or, or needing a lot of capital to go back into these buildings, get them back up into a good condition. But not all owners have the money to put in there for special assessments or, or possibly the want to do that, which is one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is the underlying land value redevelopment could be such that it, there's a, such a significant value spread over what any of these owners could sell their units for individually. So that has brought attention to potentially selling. They changed the legislation in 2016. Prior, if, if a strata wanted to wind up, you needed 100%. Everybody had to agree to do it. Well, because you needed everybody, not a lot of these places were selling none of these types of properties. In 2016, they changed it where you could get 80% of the vote, you'd still have to get court approval, but you could move it forward with that, which created some flexibility and really some opportunity. So for the last three or four years, our team has been instrumental with some, you know, working with some of these stratas that, you know, some of the biggest properties of this kind in the lower mainland, and we've got a number of them under contract right now. What kind of premium typically are you paying to incentivize 80% of the owners to want to proceed? There's no real set amount per se, it ranges, but typically in order to get that 80%, you're going to need at least a 35, 40% lift. And a lift could be anywhere from around 35% up to, you know, 65% over and above. It is a longer process. Typically it could take anywhere from, you know, a year and a half to two and a half years to get from one point, the entry point in the process, to it actually closing. But uh, it can be very lucrative for the ownership group and a number of, you know, financially. Aside from, you know, the premium being paid to those individual condo owners, you know, what kind of strategy are you deploying? Like, how is it that you're engaging the condo board? You know, what other things are you doing to, I mean, I, I'm assuming it's, it's almost just like there's a threshold. You're kind of just counting until you get to that 80%. How do you kind of go about you know, accumulating that number? Well, I guess it's, it starts out when they have interest or they're approached. And so what they would do is they'd have a straw vote, which isn't a legal vote, but a straw vote of, of owners in the very beginning to have an interest in, in, you know, they're not voting to sell, but they have an interest in seeing a process happen. They'll vote to take money out of the contingency to get a strata lawyer. And basically they'll do a straw vote to move it forward, to have, to have the property marketed. So when the deal gets negotiated, it'll be subject to the official vote, which will happen at a special AGM. And at that point, they'll get information on the developer on all the terms and conditions of the offer. They'll have the ability to ask questions and figure out exactly what the net proceeds are to them individually as owners. And then from that point, they would make their vote. Typically, I think there's been probably about seven or eight that have gone through. 
and like I said, if you don't get 100%, you still need Supreme Court approval. Right. So it's, it is challenging. I can imagine it. And it's probably competitive. Probably don't get sort of exclusivity. I, I imagine there might be multiple developers kind of, you know, battling for the same sites if it really is dependent on land value. Our agency and we work for the strata. Okay. So, oh, okay. So it's the other side around. You're actually working yeah, for the strata. hundred so percent of what we do is to maximize value, both in, in financial terms and in other well, conditions. Yeah. You're bringing it saying, okay, I got a corporation, a condo corp willing to sell. And then you're trying to sell it and then bringing it to market in theory for developers to bid on. Typically, these offerings aren't priced. The first thing to really quickly, what we would do is we would run a performance just like a developer would, just to figure out what's the residual land value. And then how does the residual land value compare to what each owner could sell their condo individually? If there's no lift, the probability of that moving forward isn't good. I won't take on the assignment. So I've already done what a developer is going to do in due diligence at the very beginning. And then through the process, we're adjusting it. I think that's really interesting, that strata concept, because of course, it's, it's unique to your market. And um, let's move on to just insurance quickly. Something that Adam and I have kind of had top of mind, it's unique or, or important to the, to the apartment industry because the, the costs are going up you know, rather drastically. I'm wondering what you're hearing in your marketplace, just how your clients are adapting to just a different insurance world where premiums are up. You know, there's a lot more due diligence required now to find the proper insurance. Absolutely. Well, it's been significant because, uh, you know, how these rising operating costs are affecting cash flows. But for insurance specifically, I'm hearing from a number of clients that irrespective of really the condition or the relationship with their insurance provider, they're seeing their insurance costs go up an average of 50%. And in some cases, the insurer that, you know, they may have a relationship with for some time has said, uh, you know, if you have fuses in your building and not breakers in the suites, we're going to give you 35 days to convert that as a criteria of even getting the insurance. So you're really at their whim, but it's not only been more costly, but uh, in, in some cases, landlords have had to make building upgrades immediately. I find that very fascinating. And 50% is a higher number than I've heard, but I, I think we're all still, this is the early days of this. You know, We've talked about it again on this podcast, but whether it's errors and omissions insurance or impairment insurance or, or property insurance or whatever it is, it's going up across the board. Title insurance, everything, everything and everything is going up as a result of just recalculations of, of the insurance uh, underwriting. It's something that everybody needs to be aware of. Absolutely. Why don't we talk about you know, what we're seeing right now in, in current day, you know, basically June 1st, and just maybe kind of you know, hypothesize a little bit about what you kind of think is going to happen over the next sort of 60 to 120 days. Obviously, it's going to depend on, uh, you know, our COVID and, uh, you know, how we're transitioning with our economy and where this market's going to go. You know, I'm very optimistic about the multifamily. I think there's going to be another buying group who's going to be joining in, looking for these types of assets just based on what commercial and, you know, office has gone through. And I think people are looking at multifamily, you know, seeing how resilient of an asset and defensive asset class that it is. And I've got clients that may not even have multifamily, but are thinking, you know what, I think that's going to change. So I think if they're able to get around and, and fly and, and be able to do their due diligence and really look at these opportunities, I think end of the year and going into next year could be significant to the point where cap rates might even compress. Because I think multifamily and industrial are going to be the two assets that are really going to attract the equity that's out there. And there, there is still a lot of 
equity out there that are going to be looking for opportunities. And who's left the market since uh, since March? Who was active at the start of the year that would have left the market because of COVID nineteen that you know would be unlikely to return in September when things kind of pick up again? Most of the institutions have been pens down since this occurred, putting all their resources into their own platforms, into their own portfolios, into their own people. With the inability to fly and get into buildings, they've been out of the market. We are getting inquiries from them now. And you know, I think as we transition back, I could see them coming back more predominantly uh, later in the year, but they've been out of the market. So that's, that's really affected taking out sizable assets being able to market them successfully when you don't have an audience. I think on the private sector, up until probably the last couple of weeks, the majority of the private sector was out of the market. They were concerned about their own portfolios, their own families, their own well-being. And it was almost not the right thing to do to talk to people about buying or selling. It was more about, you know, how can we help you and, and you know, how are you doing? So I think the buyers that were out there were more opportunistic buyers that we're looking for opportunities to where people, you know, some owners may have to sell. So those were the, the buyer segment that was there. And I think uh, as we move back and everything unfolds, I'm seeing that change. I've got to ask about uh, your, your opinion on the rent drop. I was looking at CoStar data the other day. I was a little startled by the graph uh, showing one, how much rents have already dropped and then what the prediction is. But the flip side of that was the graph came down very sharply and it did go back up again, starting in September, October, at a fairly reasonable pace. So what's your opinion on, on where rents actually are in the market, you know, outside of you know, some of the headlines that we're reading? You know, it's a different time, right? People are doing different things. We get back into the fall and people can transition back into their normal jobs or school and their normal way of life. I don't think that we'll be affected. So I think that's going to be a detriment right there or determination. Lance, sorry for jumping in, but I, I just wanted to add to this and maybe just kind of build on what you're about to say is I think we're at this sort of inflection point where, you know, we're now three payments in, right? Three mortgage, three monthly rent payments in, sort of, I guess, call it April, May, and June. If you're looking at the news and you're thinking this is going to last three or four months more, and you were thinking it was temporary, let's say you're a server or something like that, and you thought you could probably last 90 days. And now you think you may not be going back to work for another 30, 60, 90, 120 days. I think people are starting to think about making longer term decisions about where they live and what they're willing to do about whether it's moving home or whatever it may be. Right. I wonder just just how that plays itself out. I mean, I know you don't know the answer, but I'm curious what you think about that. That's a good point. Uh, I think you got to look and say, okay, well, does it make more sense for me to, you know, share a two bedroom because I'll cut down on my costs. So even though I like my freedom of living alone, does it make sense to team up with a friend or a colleague? Like you were saying, does, you know, do I move home? I know my son would, <laughs> you know, depending on where this goes, people are going to look at it financially and say, okay, what do I need to do? Not what I would like to do. What do I have to do? I think that's going to be determined over the next few months. And if you were uh, working at a restaurant, you're finding out now or maybe next month about is my restaurant job, are they even going to open up again? A number of these restaurants might not come back. So if you're in the restaurant industry, then you've got to go find another job for a restaurant that is, and are they hiring? So, you know, maybe, maybe I, I might have to get out of that industry. So while I'm doing that and I've got downtime, what do I need to do? Now, there has been a, a number of subsidies that the federal government, provincial government have done that different people can apply for in addition to unemployment that obviously has help, been helping. 
how long the federal government can do that remains to be seen. And, and obviously, if that stops, it's going to have a dramatic effect on you know what people's options are. And towards your question, I guess two other factors that are kind of somewhat unique to the Vancouver market: you know, students and uh, immigration. Vancouver is a city that benefits greatly from both, especially especially uh, foreign students. What do you think about the impact on you know you, Vancouver in a unique way in regards to losing those two streams of tenants on a, a temporary basis? Well, typically we get forty thousand people you know moving to the Lower Mainland every year. So you know if, if that's going to stop, you know eventually that's going to have an effect on on our market. But we are still dealing with under one percent vacancy rates predominantly across the board here. But I think we got to look at the other aspect of it. If you were a young couple or somebody looking that may have been a first-time home buyer and saved up some equity, you know, maybe they won't be a first-time home buyer and they have to be a renter. Whether they were moving out of their parents' house or they were downsizing, whatever the case may be, you know, maybe some of those buyers are utilizing that money to live on right now and, and are going to be forced to be renters. So although I agree that the migration and the students will have an effect of some sort, how big an effect, we don't know at this point. Could that be offset by people that would be potentially new renters just due to the circumstances of what's going on in the economy? Do you have a feedback or, or thoughts on just the impact of you know, students not needing to go to university? And Does that have any impact? Like I, I kind of, my sense is it's, it's so immaterial from a numbers perspective that it doesn't really move the needle. Yeah, well, you know, it's a segment, but not nearly as what it is in Toronto. There's a lot more uh, student housing and, and uh, rental accommodations that are set up around the universities. And although that is a segment here, I don't think it's nearly to that level. So I don't think it would have as nearly as significant effect as in Vancouver as it probably would in Toronto or Montreal. Yeah. One of the last topics we have, are you seeing sort of a, a split? between sort of new build and old build or sort of older class versus new class? Yeah, maybe that cost by that is luxury versus sort of the older older stock. And is there kind of a bifurcation of the market where you know, one seems to be performing stronger than the other? I just think they were different segments. Predominantly, the new builds are being purchased by institutional investors. Our team sold two sizable new buildings last year, both to institutions. And, uh, you know, they're looking for scale. They come to Vancouver and they want 75, 100 units plus. And our typical building in Vancouver is 20 units. So, you know, in order for them to get that scale, they need to buy a new build or, or, or a portfolio in order to either establish themselves or to really meet their criteria of size for operational efficiencies that they're looking for. So I see that continuing going forward depending on the economics that we talked about at the yeah, beginning of the yeah. podcast of, of making rental work. So one of the challenges that we're seeing is, you know, and these are all kind of anecdotal as we're all trying to feel our way through what's transpiring in the marketplace, but this should, that given what's transpiring, whether it's immigration or, or the lack of turnover, people not willing to sort of upgrade from a mid, mid unit to an upper class or a luxury unit, that the luxury market or the new build market, if you will, is, is softening a bit. And that we're seeing that in the sort of lease up periods, you know, buildings that are kind of coming online now are, are really struggling to get the rents that they had projected. Are you kind of having that same experience in BC? I've heard, you know, a, a little bit of a pushback, but it's hard to determine. Is that because of COVID and everything that we're experiencing right now and people just aren't moving around and people aren't making those decisions yet? I sold a, a, a 98-unit building out in Langley 
where the institution came over at the occupancy permit and they did their own leasing. And uh, they had 75% of the building leased up in under 90 days. And the rates that they were getting progressively got higher as they went along. From that market being a low $2 rent, even for new product, they were getting close to you know, $240, $245 per square foot in rent. So it's hard to say. And I think that was strong all throughout 2019, to the end of 2019. So you know, is that pushed back right now really because of the economics of, of getting those rents or because of what's happening right now? So I think that'll be, again, be determined probably in the fall as we unfold here to really be able to answer that question with any supportive data. Before we wrap up here, Lance, I've got, I've got one question from a guy who's got his finger on the pulse of uh, the Vancouver market. If you were to enter into an agreement of purchase and sale right now today, you're not waiting for the fall to see what happens. What yeah. area of Vancouver are you putting your money into? That's a good question. That's a really good question. You know, I think there's areas around the core, such as the Tri-Cities, Port Moody, Port Coquitlam, Coquitlam, New Westminster, that probably have some better value that are up and coming. And, and uh, you know, we've got SkyTrain hubs in and around those areas. There are areas in Vancouver, like South Granville, where the SkyTrain is going to be coming probably in the next five to eight years. So, you know, I think those are value-add opportunities, you know, areas of probably some good growth that have experienced to this point, but I feel that there'll even be more growth going forward. So those are areas that I would probably key in on. Okay, I like it. I'm going to pull up my map and rely on those. <laughs> I'll call you to buy land. Yes, we can do a deal. You can finance it. Perfect. Absolutely. So Lance, I appreciate the investment advice. Before we let you go here, can you kind of give your thoughts on the Vancouver market as a whole and where you see, see a bright future ahead for Vancouver and how you get there? I just think that uh, for everything that everybody's gone through, I think here in Vancouver, I think that real estate, especially multifamily and just the market in general has, has just shown such a resilience and you know, across the country as well. I think people were really shocked investors and, and speculators to look at the type of rent collections that typical owners got. Like we're, you know, we did a survey, National Apartment Group, coast to coast. On, on average, it was 95, 96% of tenants paid the rent. Coming into this, nobody had seen this obviously before, but I think it was shocking to a lot of people that it was going to be that high. And even, even the news medias were, you know, were doom and gloom and, uh, you know, and at the end of the day, they were significantly high and, and most owners got paid. I think going forward, I think that's going to be probably a major change into, into the way people look at multifamily and, and the demand that we're going to see going into 2021. Thanks, Lance, for, for coming on. That, that's a great sentiment to end on. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course, this is Adam and my favorite topic. So thanks again for Absolutely. taking the time to come on. Thanks for having uh, me. I really yeah. appreciate it. I enjoyed uh, it. We, we, we enjoyed the topic. And thanks for letting us put in a shameless FN plug too. Um, <laughs> and of course, on that note, thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thanks, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.